This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Uh, the first reading is Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading comes from Colossians chapter 1 verses 24 to 29. Now, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your holy word. May it be a lantern to our feet, a light to our path, and strength to our lives. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please do be seated, and if you grab the order of service, you'll find the sermon passage. That's from Colossians. Uh, you can have that in front of you. And then uh, the sermon outline, uh, which, I, which we've been provided there, that would be terrific. You can just follow along or take notes or ask questions or doodle if that helps you. Uh, that's up to you. But it's there uh, as a bit of a guide, a bit of a reading guide for us, or listening guide, I should say. And I want to begin by asking 
uh, a personal question, and uh, that is, are you a mature Christian? Are you a mature Christian? Now, we apply the word mature to things that ripen, don't we? Like cheese or fruit. Think of mature cheese and mature fruit. When it comes to human beings, though, it can be a bit of a euphemism for old and over the hill. We speak about the mature lady or the mature gent with the connotation of really not in your prime, uh, in fact, past it. In food terms, uh, if you're mature, you're, you're the uneaten banana in the fruit bowl with the black spots on it. Now, euphemisms aside, however, to call something mature in the real sense is to say that it has become what it always had the potential to be, what it was always supposed to be. We could use the word perfect or complete, so long as we understand that in the sense of most perfectly itself, or most perfectly ready for the purpose for which it was made. The most mature or perfect avocado. I know that you go to the supermarket and you kind of squeeze all the avocados to know which one is the most mature and most, uh, most perfectly ready to eat is the one that is not the most like a rock. Someone once told me that the trick to detecting which avocado is ready to eat is to flick the stalk on the top and if it falls off, have you heard this? Then that's the sign of the perfectly mature avocado at its most avoca perfectly avocado-like. You come to St. Mark's, you get great tips for life. In Colossians chapter 1, in verse 28, did you see in that, uh, that passage that Greta read for us, Paul writes from his prison cell that his mission is to present everyone mature, perfect or complete in Christ. That's what he strains and suffers for. But what does it mean to be fully mature or complete or perfect in Christ? What is he talking about here? Now, last week, we looked at the extraordinary song of Jesus Christ from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. The Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Christ, the maker and reconciler of all things, the one through whom and for whom and by whom all things were made, the firstborn from amongst the dead. And Paul's point for the Colossians, and for us too, was to place them on the map of God's extraordinary working out of all things in the universe, in heaven and on earth. The Christ's great work on the cross of reconciling all things to himself by making peace through his blood has been realized in them, the Colossians, when they heard and believed the gospel. That means... When you turn to Christ and seek to live his way, you are part of the great plan of God to reconcile all things to himself. Be reconciled to God, for that is where history is heading. That is what God is doing in the world. Well, that's the gospel, the good news. That is good news, not just for a few people, but for the entire universe. For it's the message of the mending of all things. And that what, what is what explains what Paul has given his whole life to. He has become, he says, a servant of this message. He says that in verse 23 in the passage just before our passage today. And then he goes on to explain that from verse 24. That's why he says he's in prison. And that's why he's suffered and continues to suffer so much hardship to keep declaring the best news he's ever heard. And that it's for everyone everywhere. 
Now, you'll know if you've read a bit of the New Testament that Paul had had a pretty hard time of it. He'd been beaten more than once. He'd been imprisoned more than once. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been cast out, humiliated, ridiculed, attacked by mobs and more. But is he resentful? Has he complained to HR? Not at all. He says in verse 24, and you hear his tone here, he says, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. I rejoice in it. And I, I, I fill up my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. And that's a remarkable verse, if you think about it for a second. Is Paul saying here that somehow Christ's death, which he's just said has reconciled all things in heaven and on earth, is somehow deficient and incomplete? And has he got a Messiah complex, imagining that he has to die for the sins of the world too, that he's now going to suffer in our place as well as Jesus Christ? Well, if you've got your biblical antennae working, you'll have noticed that Paul has been talking about his suffering as a servant, which should remind us who connect that word suffering with that word servant of the great prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, back in the Old Testament. That great prophecy of the suffering servant of which Jesus is the fulfillment as the servant king who dies, gives his life as a ransom for many, who dies for the sins of the people, who bears on himself the iniquity of us all. But it all makes sense if we understand that this Jesus Christ is still working in Paul. Whatever Paul does isn't picking up Jesus' slack, but Christ working powerfully in him to finish his work. You'll see in verse 29, Paul talks about the energy that he has as Christ working powerfully in him. What Paul does, he does with the energy of Christ. In fact, it is Christ working in him. Christ died for the sins of the world and now Christ proclaims himself to the world through Paul and through the church, his body. Again, if you read the book of Acts, the second, the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, you'll notice there that Luke presents it as really what Jesus did next. If Luke is about what Jesus did, Acts is about what Jesus did next. Although Jesus has ascended into heaven. You see, it's Jesus who's at work in the preaching of the gospel, in Paul's work, and in the work of the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the world. Paul doesn't suffer for our sins, but he does suffer as the servant of this message for our sake, to bring us the gospel. His suffering is an extension of Christ's suffering in his physical body for the sake of his people. Why does he then so happily suffer? Not because he likes pain, but because he's the bearer of such good news. The revelation, he says, of the mystery of the ages. The word of God, he says, in all its fullness. If Christ was the fullness of God, now the gospel is the word of God in all its fullness. The complete word of God with nothing deficient in it. Everything that the prophets of old longed to understand and guessed at and hinted at has now been fully revealed so that even those rough and ready Gentiles from Colossae in the middle of what we now know as Turkey know the deepest truth of all, that the Son is the image of the invisible God, Lord of all, 
What God is doing in the universe has been disclosed in the Son, in the work of Jesus. And that's what brought about the miracle, the extraordinary miracle of the Gentiles turning to the God of Israel. I I don't think we quite grasp what a miracle it is. It was the miracle of the Son, the fullness of God, through whom he brought reconciliation between himself and all things. This, says Paul, is the glorious riches of the mystery now evident in the Colossians. Now in evidence, the power of that message now in evidence in the fact that these little known people from an obscure part of the world with no knowledge of the God of Israel have now turned to make the God of Israel their God. Just as Jesus being raised from the dead is proof of the power of the message, so the turning of the Colossians is the proof of the glorious riches of the mystery now revealed in the message of Jesus Christ. How else could you explain it but that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself? As I said, I don't think we grasp what a miracle is revealed whenever people turn to Jesus Christ. What an extraordinary evidence of God's power, of the living Jesus Christ it is. In the secular West, we're used to feeling somewhat defeated. The heavy secular curtain lies over everything. God is fading, so we think. His voice is muted. His people merely surviving. But nothing could be further from the truth. The glorious riches of the mystery are there for us too, in evidence in our world. The spread of the gospel in Africa, in many parts of Africa. The spread of the gospel in China. The spread of the gospel, the good news in South America. The miracles that God is doing amongst Iranian people all over the world who are walking into churches and saying, tell me about this Jesus Christ. The vigor of the church in South Korea, in Malaysia and Indonesia, where far more people know know the name of Christ than in our nation. And I consider the people that I know who've become Christians, the hard-bitten atheist who in later life turns around and says to me, you know, It's all true, what you've been saying all along. My friend who's a feminist professor, an academic, surrounded by people who don't believe and indeed are hostile to the message of the gospel, who's turned to Christ. And many of you here, people in whom Christ has been at work, revealing the glorious riches of the mystery. Christ in you, says Paul, the hope of glory. And so we should not fail to continue to hear about the work of the gospel from around the world. We should not fail to remind each other of what God is doing in our lives. For he's active, he's busy, powerful, palpable. And because of this, Paul strains to present everyone fully mature in Christ. You can see that in verses 28 and 29. He dedicates himself to it. As he says in verse 29, to this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. He's not just uh, naming his own, str- you know, he's not saying I did this all on my own back. But he is, he in one sense, is gasping at what God has done through him in his uh, remarkable journeys. His complete focus is to present to God everyone, as he says, fully mature in Christ. And that's the question we began with uh, today. 
What does this look like? What does maturity or perfection in Christ mean? It does help us to return to avocados. Really hope you like avocados. Be a bit off-putting if you didn't. My son hates them, so I'll have to think of another fruit for him. If a mature avocado is at its most avocado-like, then a mature Christian is most Christ-like. Now, this is crucially different from how we normally think of personal maturity. We think we're supposed to become more like our true selves as we mature, that there's some true me inside that I have to become like, more, the more authentic me that I'm designed to be like, and that's what I need to attain. This is a problematic picture for all sorts of reasons, not least because we're sinful, and we tend to have distorted and selfish visions of what we should become. But it does feel a bit weird to say that maturing is to become like someone else. But we should remember who this one is. He is the image, says Paul, of the invisible God. That is to say, he is the true human being who did the human thing most perfectly, who lived the human life most divinely. He is our emblem, our symbol, our guide our measure of what human life ought to look like. We ought to be like him, for he is what we were made to be like. And what's more, he's the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. We are in him. We belong to him. It's because of him and in him that we are reconciled to the Father in heaven. And so Christ-likeness is the result of Christ's in us we have reconciliation through him now our lives are to be lived in imitation of him reconciliation now imitation this was true of paul remember paul is a great example of following christ's example in fact he says to the corinthians he says be imitators of christ be imitators of me as i imitate christ so copy paul is a good guide to copying christ he was an echo of jesus in everything indeed he suffered for the sake of the church, just as Jesus did. And so his mission is now to bring everyone to ripeness, perfection, maturity in Christ, to perfect Christ-likeness. Okay, so how are we, we to become mature in Christ? We very, know very well what it takes for a cheese to mature. You put it in a cave and the bacteria will do its work over time. So it becomes what we hope it will be. Now, maturing in Christ does involve a kind of hidden work, just as it does with Jesus, a work of Christ in us by his spirit. But we are more active than Jesus, you'll be glad to know. Paul tells us that he matures people in Christ, first of all, by proclaiming Christ, by admonishing everyone, secondly, and by teaching everyone with all wisdom, Thirdly, teaching, admonishing, uh, sorry, proclaiming, admonishing, and teaching. What's he doing? Well, he's spelling out for us the full implications of the gospel so that we'll not just believe it, we'll live it, we'll become it. He's first of all preaching Christ because it's the grace of God that is the key to transformation. It's the grace of God that teaches us everything, that shapes us. See, he's not a moralist or life coach telling us, try harder. The message is not, pull your socks up, be better. 
The message starts with the news of forgiveness and reconciliation in Christ. You can have peace with God because of God's great gift to you of Jesus Christ. Christ died for you. You are now holy and pure in his sight. So let that message shape you. Be like him in everything, for this is how God lives in human form. But Paul also admonishes everyone. That is, he rebukes them. That is, the thing that stops us from maturing in Christ is the thing that we need admonishing about, sin. Why are we not like Christ? For Christ knew no sin. Well, it's sin that stops us from being like Christ. So in order to be mature, to become like Christ, we need to realize that we are sinners and to put to death the things that we do that are sin. To take them out the back and shoot them. To really cut them out. And Jesus says, of course, if your hand causes you to sin, what does he say? Cut it off. What he means is, cut out of your life the things that make you not Christ-like, that stop you from maturing. We don't just sit there and accept that sin has got its grip on us. We are to leave it behind. So we need to be admonished. And that's why confessing our sins is so important. We cannot begin maturing in Christ unless we do it. We can't become at all like the one who knew no sin if we don't honestly look at ourselves and see the sin that still clings to us. As an ancient theologian and monk called Evagrius once said, I like this, he says, the beginning, it's just weird enough for a monk to say, but true. The beginning of salvation, he says, is to condemn yourself. That's good, isn't it? It's good and weird and true. He recommended that the way to open yourself up to God was to weep for your sins for several days. We usually have this season of Lent, a time of reflecting precisely on why Easter is needed. So that we don't just come to, the, come to the cross on Good Friday and wonder why it's there. We prepare ourselves for 40 days, maybe weeping for our sins, considering them, preparing to hear the good news afresh on Good Friday and Easter Day. Now, it sounds intense, doesn't it? But if I'm honest, I've become too comfortable with the sin that marks my life. It's like all the junk that's in my shed. Too easy not to throw out. Too easy to just let sit there and accumulate dust over the years. And yet, not dealing with my sin, remember, holds me back from maturity in Christ. What about you? Each week... We together practice the confession of sin because we know how much we need it. We remember together the healing words of the gospel and we send each other out so that we might change. We come to the Lord's table to remember the blood shed for us, the body broken for us because we need it. And we go out in the power of the Holy Spirit to live and work for his glory. So I ask you, are you changing are you dealing with the sin that is in your life? Maybe that's something you could start today. Paul admonishes everyone, but he also teaches everyone with all wisdom. He's already prayed in chapter 1 
that the Colossians would have a deeper knowledge of the grace of God. Remember that they all be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they would bear fruit in every good work. They are to have a deeper knowledge, to desire to have a deeper knowledge in Christ, for that's what maturity in Christ is. It comes from knowing God in Christ deeply and from doing the things that Christ did. In Romans chapter 12, Paul calls this a renewing of your mind or your nous. You might remember that from last year when we looked at Romans chapter 12. Changing your mindset, your whole approach to life. Now, he didn't mean something purely rational or intellectual. He meant actually knowing God in Jesus Christ more and more deeply. You see, we're surrounded by so many lies. Satan in the Bible is in fact called the father of lies because he takes us away from God by these distortions of the truth. We're surrounded by lies about God, about the world and about ourselves. It's impossible to name them all here and now, but if and when we believe lies, they misshape us. They misshape us. Believe that God is mean and you'll be mean. You'll be resentful. Believe that God is simply there as a champion of your wonderful individuality. And then you'll be a narcissist. The antidote to lies is, of course, the truth. But because we're so immersed in the lies, we need to take strong action to wash ourselves in the truth. This is why Paul gave himself so wholeheartedly to mature people through admonishing them, but also through teaching them in all wisdom. To be mature in Christ, we cannot be casual about this. You need to awaken our hunger for the word of God. Through the word of God, we attain the knowledge of God. God speaks to us. Now, this one hour on Sunday is there to reprogram us for spiritual maturity. That's why we open the scriptures together and why we give so much time to having them read and taught and sung and prayed and we remember them, we open them as we share in the Lord's Supper. And that's why, if I may, our sermons are not 10-minute vignettes, thoughts for the day, my blog posts reimagined or something, but have a far more significant task. They're designed to help us all on the goal of maturity. Maturity in Christ through engagement with the Word of God. They're not my vanity project. Like Paul... My job, in fact, the job we all have together is to present each other fully mature in Christ by admonishing and teaching one another with all wisdom, which means presenting to one another the full counsel of God. But beyond this one hour, there's so many other ways to immerse yourself in the teaching of the gospel and grow in the knowledge of God. Reading the Bible for yourself or with a friend, meaning just to read a little part of the Bible together. Coming to a connect group, can't emphasize how vital and how, uh, how helpful those are. Listening to podcasts, uh, there are many good podcasts out there. Uh, taking courses, uh, I believe we have a course that you could join today. Is that right, Tim? We do. We have a course that you could join today in the Howard Lee Hall at half past three. Just turn up and come and grow in the knowledge of God, become more mature in Christ. And there are many, of course, good books that you can read too. If you'd like to begin today, join Tim's course or speak to me, one of the ministry staff here, and we can help you, point you in the right direction. So then, 
Are you on the way to maturity in Christ? Are you becoming the person God has called you to be in Jesus? Are you leaving your old self behind and becoming more like Christ? Of course, the hallmark of Christian maturity, the hallmark of Christ-likeness is love. We ought to see that love emerging from one another as we grow. We ought to see a developing love of God, a growing heart for God, hunger for him. And we ought to see a growing love of our neighbor. It begins with recognizing our failures to love, but it goes forward under the banner of Christ's victory over sin and evil, knowing that we have forgiveness in him. I think the most disappointing thing I encounter as a pastor and in my own life is seeing people who've been Christians for years, but who are babies in the faith, still marked by pettiness, meanness, lack of grace, ignorance of God and no desire to change that, blind prejudice, gossip and resentment to see no desire to mature. On the other hand, the great delight, and I thank you for it, is to see people change when they become forgiving, generous, thirsty to know God more, compassionate, ready to serve others. In other words, when I can see Jesus Christ himself wonderfully and miraculously evident in you, Christ in you, and in me, the hope of glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources, and find more information about the community of St. Mark's.